Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 12, page 1866, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Hebrews 4, 12. Hear God's holy word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. And I'll read for us uh, Article 7 of our confession. We're here teaching on the Holy Scriptures being sufficient and our only rule of faith. Article 7, it says this. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God, and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the holy scriptures, nay, though it were an angel from heaven, as the apostle Paul says." For since it is forbidden to add unto or take away anything from the word of God, it does thereby evidently appear that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with those divine scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity or succession of times and persons, or councils, decrees, or statutes, as of equal value with the truth of God, since the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars, and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore we reject with all our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule, as the apostles have taught us, saying, Prove the spirits, whether they are of God. Likewise, If anyone cometh unto you and bringeth not this teaching, receive him not into your house. So we consider this rule of faith, the word of God. What I'm going to do is, in many ways, highlight different aspects of all that is found in Articles 2 through 7 to give a bit of a, a summary and a wrapping up of the things we've been considering as we have looked at Holy Scripture uh, in relation to the Belgic Confession. So I'll be making reference to other articles as well, 3 through 7, and probably even a little bit from Article 2 as well. But what we read when we read about the rule of faith and calling Scripture as such, we say that the Bible has all we need for what we are to believe and how we are to live before God. And so thus there is great blessing in going to God's word, and we need God's word every week and every day. I don't say this to disparage sports in any way. I I love sports. I follow them. I watch them, perhaps 
more than I sometimes should, but uh, there's a, some kind of a sporting event going on now, I think. And um, it was estimated this week, something, a number that I had heard was that just to get ready for their uh, parties of the big game, I don't want to say the word so I don't have any copyright lawsuits thrown at me, just to get ready for their family parties or, or friend parties for the game, Americans were going to spend $15.3 billion just to get their houses ready for the game. Now, uh, it seems to me that if you take a step back and, and you think about all that's going on, you, really what you see on a day like today is one humongous swing and a miss from the culture of trying to find lasting joy, trying to find something that will stick with you, make you a joyful and content person. We're, we're grasping around in the darkness. The irony, perhaps, is that the truth that we find in the God and Lord of the universe is right in his word. And he tells us how we may be content, how we can be joyful, how we can find rest and reward in him. As we see the, 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 the trends of this sort of thing, people groping around, looking for something that would find rest, we're reminded, aren't we, of that prayer of St. Augustine where he says, we, our hearts will not find rest until they find their rest in thee. We need to find our rest and our all in God. And we go to God's word in order to find that. We find in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, a very simple verse, but packed with all kinds of truths for us to remind ourselves of as we think about the word of God and its effectiveness in our lives. The first idea is that there is a word of God and a word from God. As we've been saying throughout these last few weeks, the Bible does not arise from a human decision. It does not originate by someone waking up and saying, I think I'm going to write some scripture today. The Bible comes from God. Article, Article 3 of our confession says, Men spoke from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. This is what we mean by inspiration. It's given through the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we wonder, how does inspiration work? We would say that inspiration is an organic process. What do we mean by this? When we say that the Spirit inspiring the Scriptures is organic, We mean that it's not mechanical. The spirit does not take over the mind of the writer so that the human uh, human person is completely passive or that God dictates each and every word directly. Sometimes that does happen, right? When the prophets say in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to me or thus saith the Lord, right? That would be an example of where God is directly giving each and every word. But that is not what is going on on each and every page and each and every passage of the Bible. So it's not a mechanical process. It's not a gradual process. It's not as if God planted words and ideas in the heart of Paul and then over time had them come out of him in some way. It's not a gradual process. It's not an inconsistent process. It's not as if human beings write and whenever they're about to slip into some kind of mistake or error, God kind of corrects them and gets them back on the right track. It's not an inconsistent process. Rather, we use this word organic, which by which I mean this. The consciousness and the judgment, the vocabulary, the character, and the memory of the writers of Scripture, the 
Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, all the prophets, all of those things about who they are, their memory, their vocabulary, their character, they are active. Yet at the same time, they are penetrated by the influence of the Holy Spirit. So we see human action and divine action woven together in this wonderful, wonderful way to produce a perfect word without error which cannot fail. One way that we could perhaps think about this melding of human and divine action is providence, right? In, in every day in the world, there are human beings who are living and working and moving. But behind all of that, we see the sovereignty of God. That's not an exact parallel, but it provides similar conditions where we see human and divine action working together. Thus, we conclude that God has given a word. And we must distinguish what that word is. What we see in Hebrews 4 is that it is a living word. But first we need to answer the question, what is that word of God? And how did it come to be that we have the Bible that we have? The books of the Bible, that's a question that sometimes gets people worried, right? How did we come to have the Bible that we have? Do we have all of the right books? Did we miss some? Did we include some of the wrong books in our scriptures. Article 4 in our confession lists the books that are what we consider the books of the Bible, or as theologians call it, the canon. How did we come to have the Bible that we have? Well, again, the process was not mechanical, nor was it Magical. A mechanical process would have been a, a, a church or a group of church leaders conferring authority upon a group of books and saying, we give authority to this group of books. This is the authoritative word of God. It wasn't a mechanical process like that. It wasn't a magical process. A magical process would have been a crisp, leather-bound Bible falling down from the sky with all of the right books already in it in the exact right translation in the perfect language for everyone. It was not mechanical. It was not magical. Rather, God's people recognized that the Holy Scriptures were authoritative by one primary reason. There were other reasons, but one primary thing, one primary process, and that was the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. What we find in Article 5 is that the scriptures are such. They are the Holy Bible, the Holy Word of God, because in this book, in the books of the Bible that we have, we find especially, like in no other place, the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God. It's the Holy Spirit's witness. And there was a process over time of God's people reading receiving, distributing letters that had come from apostles or those close to apostles and a process of recognizing that the books we ended up with and God guiding that process along, that there is where we found the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Two things to keep in mind that the Holy Spirit does to us when God's people go to Scripture. The first is we are granted understanding. The Holy Spirit causes the Bible to become a light to us, just like we considered this morning God's word is a light to our path. It gives us understanding that we would not find elsewhere. So the first is understanding. The second aspect of what the Holy Spirit does through God's word is the Holy Spirit causes the Bible to become the power of a new life to us. So it becomes a light. That's knowledge, understanding, 
And then there's also new life. That's transformation. It changes us from the inside out. It changes God's people. And it works out and brings us along on the process of sanctification. We would think just very simply, I'll give you a a quick example. There are many people who struggle with, with worry and anxiety. And for that person, you might bring them to a a place like Philippians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 7, where the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. And and in chapter 4, he's encouraging them. And he's saying, it is God's will that you not worry, that you not be anxious. And then he gives these instructions. And what we need to see is that God inspiring these, these passages, just like this, is that Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God's people can be equipped and then transformed to experience a new life beyond uh, one in which they would be plagued by the kind of worry without the Spirit's help. So something I do when I'm uh, perhaps trying to help someone through their struggles with worry or anxiety is I say, when's the last time you sat down, you and a notebook or a journal, and you listed out for 10, 15, 20 minutes. All of the reasons why you should be thankful to God. All of the reasons why you ought to give thanksgiving to him. The Apostle Paul says, with every, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When our hearts overflow with thanksgiving to the true God, with the help of the Holy Spirit in the power of scripture, the Apostle Paul promises us, and this is a promise, He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we overflow with thanksgiving, the peace of God becomes like a a sentry or a guard, guarding our hearts and our minds from the worry and the anxiety of not believing that God is in control, of not believing that he is our heavenly father. It's that kind of a thing that we see in scripture the ability to gain eternal understanding, the ability to have a life-transforming experiential vitality that brings forth new obedience and ultimately the glory of God. The experience of this kind of transformative power of the word of God is something that's not going to resonate with the natural mind. Someone who has not been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Someone who has not been given life uh, in Christ. And so it's not going to be very convincing as to why we have the Bible that we have to those who reject Christ. But for those who are in Christ, and for those who seek his honor and his fame in the world, it convinces us of the power of God's word when we go to God's word and we experience that power and that understanding that comes forth from the Holy Spirit illuminating the scriptures. See, only the Bible can truly do this for us. Thus, God's people are led into truth by the Holy Spirit, and there is a harmony between what is taught in the scriptures and our experience of its truth and power. 
So we see the centrality of the Holy Spirit in all of this process. Last week we talked about the, the, the kinds of people who were prophets at the beginning of the New Testament church and the early church. And the Apostle Paul instructed the people of God to weigh what a prophet said by the Holy Spirit's leading. For instance, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, now we have received not the spirit of the word, but the spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So then he says later on in the book, in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking about prophecy, let two or three prophets speak and let, uh, let the others weigh what is said. Thus, before the New Testament canon was written, when the apostles were still living and there were prophets who were giving this, this abounding revelation from God about Christ being the Savior to all the world, the Apostle Paul said, let them speak and you will be guided into truth by the Holy Spirit. It was a very similar process that brought about God's people recognizing what are the books we should have in our Bible. The Holy Spirit allows God's people to recognize false teachers at that time of the early church, and then it allowed them to recognize false scriptures. Thus, the early church was guided along to receive exactly the book that it did and to receive what was given from God. The question of the Old Testament was rather simple because the Old Testament church had had it for centuries and, and those who believed in Christ saw him as the true fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus never criticized the, the Old Testament that the people of Israel had and so it was very easy for the church to determine what were the books of the Old Testament. In the New Testament there were two basic criteria to weigh understanding that the Holy Spirit again is behind it all but two basic criteria in thinking about should this book be a part of the scriptures at those very early stages of the New Testament church. The first question was this, is this an apostolic writing, that is a writing by an apostle or someone connected closely enough to an apostle that it could be seen as coming from a place of authority? For instance, we're going through the gospel of Luke in the morning. Luke was someone who followed Paul and who learned a lot from Paul himself not being an apostle but we consider that an apostolic writing because of its connectedness to the apostle Paul that's the first criterion the second criterion is this does it agree with all of the apostolic teaching is it fully in harmony with all of the other scriptures that we have coming out the basic conviction right that God cannot contradict himself that God speaks only what is true with these, with these two criteria, excuse me, through time God led his people to easily distinguish between the words of God and the words of men. So we find all kinds of theologians in the second and the third centuries naming the exact canon of scripture that we have today. Athanasius in the year 369, councils that were meeting in the third and fourth centuries agreeing That does not mean that the church creates the Bible, but the church receives it, right? Not mechanical, it's not magical, God guides it along. And if we believe that God can inspire the scriptures, we have to believe that in his sovereignty, he can lead us to having the right scriptures. And that is what we have. Article 6 in our confession deals with the Apocrypha. These books that were written in between the, the, the Old Testament being finished and the appearance of Christ. Perhaps you've wondered, why, why do we not have those books in our Bible? 
Why do we not have the books of the Apocrypha? I'll just give you a few ideas, a few reasons why um, we do not have those books as scriptures of ours. The first is that Jesus and the apostles never quoted them, right? So that would not close the case, but of course we, we, would, we would expect to find some kind of interaction if they were on the level of scripture. The second is the Old Testament church never received them. When Jesus came and walked the earth, that was not part of the scriptures of the Old Testament. So we read in Romans 3, verse 2, where, it, where Paul says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But included in that was not the Apocrypha at that time. The third is this. Unlike the infallible and errant word that we have, the Apocrypha contains obvious errors. For instance, we read at the opening of the book of Judith, it says this, quote, It was the twelfth year of Nebuchadnezzar who reigned over the Assyrians in the great city of Nineveh. This would have been news to Nebuchadnezzar who reigned over the Babylonians in Babylon. The fourth reason is this. The end of Malachi shows us that the Old Covenant revelation had ended at that point. And Malachi ends by saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So that's the closing of Old Testament Revelation saying the next person to show up, you know that Revelation will happen again when you see Elijah the prophet. Of course, that is who? That's John the Baptist, right? A fifth reason. The Apocrypha contains teaching that's contrary to the doctrine of salvation as it's found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For instance, we find in Tobit chapter 4, verse 10, it says this, Almsgiving delivers from death and keeps one from entering into darkness. This is one of the most important verses uh, that the Roman Catholic Church used for their doctrine of indulgences in the, medieval, in the medieval church. And of course, it's contrary to what we see in Scripture, salvation by grace through faith. And then finally, it was not until the 16th century that the Apocrypha was declared to be Scripture. So I say all that, why? To give you confidence that when you hold the Bible in your hands, you are holding the word of God. Exactly the word that God intended for us to have. The Holy Spirit inspired it. The Holy Spirit led us into recognizing it. And thus, we know that with it, we will be thoroughly equipped with right teaching and proper living so that we might have a solid and unshakable faith unto our salvation and unto the resurrection. All that God wants to teach us and all that he requires of us is found in the Bible that we have. And then we would also say that it is a grievous sin to add or to take away anything to what he has said. Proverbs 30 verse 6, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Changing times, uh, the, the advancements of technology, it doesn't mean that God's word is not still sufficient. We see also, not only is the word of God living, but the word of God is active. And we will spend the rest of our time this evening thinking about that, the word of God being 
active. To say that God's word is active is to say that it works whatever God intends for its readers and its hearers. The picture that the apostle, that the apostle employs here in the book of Hebrews is one of a sword that sinks into and separates and searches. It does work on us spiritually that nothing else can do, just like we talked about with that example from Philippians chapter 4. In order to understand why and how the scriptures do this, we need to be attuned to simple truths. But simple truths that are not commonly held in today's world. Truths like we have a soul. Truths like having a soul matters. That God is the physician of the soul. And that he liberally gives spiritual blessings in his word. And spiritual blessings are the best kinds of blessings that we could experience in this life. So we say that God's word is active God's word sinks into our deepest part, our soul. It sinks into our soul. When God addresses us in his word, he does so that he might touch our innermost thoughts and feelings. And he does not say what he does in his word just to make us feel good. I came across an interesting article recently that said that there is this boom in astrology It's connected really with the internet. People are accessing the internet and people are reading in in numbers like never before horoscopes and all kinds of astrological teaching. And I found this quote, I thought it was interesting. The, the, The point is that people read this, but it needs to be, they can show that the popularity of the astrology or the horoscope corresponds to how positive it is, to how happy it makes people feel. I read this, astrology comes with many, many forms of packaging, but one thing holds in common. The packaging has to be happy, very happy, virally happy. This tells us something about humanity. We want to know the truth about ourselves, but only if it's going to be happy. That is not why God says what he says in his word. Not to make us happy, to give us salvation, to give us all that we need for faith and for life. God's word intends to sink deeply into us. And here in Hebrews, it is not a happy, it's not a happy uh, image, is it? That of a knife or a sword sinking deeply into us, not to influence our our mood or our superficial feelings, but to transform us from the inside out. We will never be remade and renewed until the old man until our sinful and corrupted self is slain under the power of the word of God, under the edge of God's spiritual sword. So it sinks into us for our good, not to make us happy, not to influence surface feelings, but to actually transform us. God's word is active. Secondly, God's word separates our soul and our spirit. Oftentimes these words mean the same thing, soul and spirit, but when they occur together... Soul has to do with our affections and spirit has to do with our mental or intellectual faculties, that which we know and we understand. And the point is that God's will separates them, our soul, our affections, from our intellectual understanding so that both might be oriented in and of themselves to the glory of God, to knowing him and to understanding him and to enjoying him. That it separates those two so that they both can be finely tuned. All of our knowledge and all of our affections might be completely devoted to him. It it does work on us that allows us to know 
What is the difference between my affections and between my knowledge? What, how can I glorify God better through my knowledge? How can I glorify God better through my affections? It makes us spiritually aware that no other, no other book can come close to doing God's word allows us to know the difference between seeking God with our hearts and with our minds and also to experience a blessing in both. We can't have emotional depth without knowledge, right? We need to know truth about God. But likewise, we can't have a bare head knowledge either. It needs to be accompanied by a spiritual vitality, by love for Christ, by a desire to see the glory of God in the world. Both are needed, spiritual vitality and a proper knowledge of God. God has given us both our mind and our affections to serve him and to honor him. It sinks down to separate soul and spirit, and then it says joints and marrow. That accompanies soul and spirit just to show that there is nothing so hard or strong in us that God's word is unable to pierce. There there is no one that is so cold and turned off that God cannot penetrate that heart if he so chooses in and through his word. So then God's word separates and then finally God's word searches the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. The best way to think about this is light piercing darkness, right? You you shine a flashlight into a dark room. If it's especially powerful, you see how light pierces through the darkness and that's what God's word does. It exposes unbelief. It exposes all of the ways in which, in which we are mistrusting God and, and in which we need to grow in our trust for him. It exposes immaturity. The more that we grow spiritually, the more we realize what we need to learn and what we need to work on. Someone may struggle with lust in their teens or their 20s, but once there is a measure of victory over that sin, they realize that impatience and distraction and anxiety are a whole host of other things to work on. Anger or other things. It exposes immaturity. It exposes the vices that we thought were virtues. Perhaps we always thought that we were content, but we were actually slothful. Perhaps we thought that we were trusting, but we really just did not care about anything. We were cavalier. Being shaped by God's word exposes all of the ways in which our sin must be eradicated by the power of God and by communing with him in and through his word. Perhaps you think to yourself, well, that's fine if God's word is living and it's active for God's people, but there are so many people who read the the Bible and have a veil over their eyes. It is not that to them, to those who reject Christ, to those who do not experience his power or his salvation. uh, They do not experience that God's word is living and active. And to that, we would say this, God's word is always effectual, and there is always something eternal at stake. We read in Isaiah chapter 55, very famous verse, right? God says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's always worth it to proclaim the word of God because there are, there's always something eternal at stake and there is always something happening. The Apostle Paul comments on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he says to those who preach the gospel, if, if uh, there are those who agree with it and who see the truth of the gospel of Christ, 
the apostles become an aroma of life to life, but to those who reject it, they become a fragrance of death to death. We think about the passage we looked at this morning where the the queen of Sheba and the Ninevites are going to rise up in the day of judgment and they are going to condemn those who saw Jesus but rejected him. There's always something eternal that's at stake when God's word is being proclaimed. So in conclusion, we would say that the preaching of God's word and the proclamation of the same, it lays us bare before a holy God and before ourselves. We know God better and we know ourselves better. In order to commune with God better, in order to know him more, we must have our own wisdom be destroyed. We must have the sword, the double-edged sword of the word, sink down into us. We, ha- we must have our affections and our minds turned towards the true and the good and the beautiful. We must be remade in the creative word of God. We, we experience, when we experience the transforming power of God in his word, we're experiencing the power of the same God who spoke the universe into existence. The God who, sh- has, who has shown in our hearts is the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Let there be light in Genesis 1. Thus, we reject anything that claims to be God's word that is found outside of the Bible. And we reject all things on earth or heaven itself that contradicts any teaching of God's word. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 1 verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In conclusion tonight, the word of God is our infallible rule of faith. I'll close with this quote. Uh, from John Calvin. As soon as God opens his sacred mouth, all our faculties ought to be open to receive his word. For he would not have his word scattered in vain, so as to disappear or to fall neglected on the ground, but he would have it effectually to constrain the consciences of men, so as to bring them under his authority. And that he has put power in his word for this purpose that it may scrutinize all the parts of the soul, search the thoughts, discern the affections, and in a word, show itself to be the judge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, as we continue to come to it as the fountain of your wisdom and your knowledge and your blessing, may you bless us in all of our endeavors as we seek always to remain close beside it, faithful to it, for your honor and glory. Through the power of your spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.